who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 6 Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Heerman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travisheerman.com slash rogues. Chapter 6 The baker settled onto the chair and faced the other four men seated around the corner table. This group of men did not often meet in this tea house at this time of day, but they were all regular patrons in their own right, so the Cuscan proprietor gave them little thought amidst the uproar. All five men were known in this quarter. All five had lived here for years, built lives and respectable identities. It was indeed a pleasant morning, with a brilliant blue sky and a charge like lightning in the air. The cup of tea warmed the baker's hand, and he rested the cup on his small flowered paunch as he reclined against the wall. From his position, he could observe every person in the tea house. No one paid him and his brothers any attention. Herds of infidels passed by outside, going about their business as if they were not about to be swept up in the great cleansing fire of the third birth. What sad, stupid fools, pretending that the forces of the heavens could be at all trifled with. The baker had spent years living among the infidels and knew they were worthy of only death and damnation. Their lascivious ways, their godlessness, their damnable affluence in the face of the gods' proscribed austerity. Every day he felt the satisfaction of a man doing the gods' work, living his life according to the model of the great prophet albeit in secret, only in his heart. His baked goods were renowned for their quality, and he had become a modestly affluent man himself, 
Of course, it was acceptable for him to enjoy his sinful affluence because he was doing the great prophet's will. His delectable pastries had gained the attention of Lord Terrell Wollstone himself, and three times a week the baker delivered a basket of fresh pastries to Lord Terrell at Tarnak Castle. And, three times a week, the baker prowled the hidden passageways of the castle, listening to conversations, unheard and unseen. The castle had been in such an uproar this morning that his presence, and his pastries, had hardly been noticed. The stable-hand, dressed in worker's garb that smelled faintly of hay and collard dung, worked in the immense cavalry stables of House Wollstone. He maintained a friendly discourse with many of the officers and common troops in the Second Wollstone Cavalry Regiment. He was just a friendly young man, blonde and blue-eyed, looking for all the world like a native Cuscan. But the baker valued him for his sharp ears and agile memory, and at the end of every day he wrote down every fragment of conversation that he heard. He looked and behaved just like the people around him, but he was not one of them. The barkeep at the Silver Orchid, one of Norgard's most exclusive brothels, knew the comings and goings of some of the richest, most powerful men in Cuska. He knew their habits, their predilections, and the size of their coin purses. Based on the services they could afford, the women of the Silver Orchid were astute observers. The baker chafed a bit that the barkeep allowed the whores into his bed in their occasional free moments. The barkeep assured him that, even as they pleasured him, in his heart of hearts he found their soiled touch to be repugnant. But he endured for the good of the cause. The youngest among them had become a journeyman in the Punisher's Guild, one of the most renowned and most reviled guilds in Cuska. They performed the executions, the floggings, the tortures, the public punitive humiliations called for by Cuska's great charter of man. They served as the guards at the Blood Tower, in the smaller jails around Norgard, and throughout the countryside. They stoked the coals, cranked the rack, wielded the pinchers, the spikes, the implements of torture as deemed necessary to extract the proper confessions, to punish. The young man was ugly, but he had a keen mind. He knew every smallest finger's breadth of space within the blood tower, every dank forgotten crevice of the underground, every cell, every tunnel, and every forgotten egress. The dock laborer, with a strong back and a brutal arm, kept a stable of seaside tufts, willing and able to do his bidding for a few iron marks in their purses. None of those small-minded roustabouts knew their true employer, but that was best. It was so easy to lean on the proper people at the proper time, to ensure that a ship was loaded and launched whenever need be, and to make the proper people forget what they saw and heard. Threats of broken limbs or slit throats tended to turn most people into deaf-mutes. The men whom the baker had gathered here on this pivotal morning all appeared to come from varied backgrounds. They led simple lives, but they all had one commonality. In the quiet, secret places where they slept, under their mattresses or under the floorboards or behind the wardrobe, each of them possessed a distinctive knife, razor-sharp, with a downswept, serrated blade. Today they sat together for a while, quietly sipping their tea. The baker enjoyed moments like this. Among his brethren, he could imagine that he was home. He could imagine the sound of the master's voice, telling him that he was doing the great prophet's will. 
They had all waited so patiently in the shadows for the day when the word would come, and now the master's plan was set in motion. Here in the tea-house, the careful, practiced nonchalance of their demeanors served as a thin veneer over the seething cauldron of action waiting to be unleashed. The excitement among them was palpable. As they spoke about mundane things like the weather, the disappearance of poor Bella Wollstone, the latest Filton play, the price of flour, or a troublesome neighbor, another conversation was taking place below the surface of their words. A conversation filled with subtle gestures, choice of words, and phrasing that said one thing, but held a deeper meaning. If one took portions of their speech, like grains of wheat hidden in chaff, discarded the chaff and lined up the grains, adjusted the meaning with gestures in the proper interlude. The conversation was quite different. The baker said, They still don't know where she was taken, although they suspect she was placed on a ship. The dock worker said, The others who helped load the ship are dead, except for my men. But there could be other witnesses. That's possible. Only the prophets are perfect. Regrettably, Javin Wollstone is still alive. He was wounded, but it was not fatal. We may be called upon to rectify that. The young punisher said, But we must wait for word. The master was most specific. Every pawn has its role, even if we do not know it. We cannot take action unless ordered, except for preserving our secrecy. The baker said, Which is why the women have to die. Our identity, our purposes, must remain a mystery until the last possible instant. They'll be brought to the blood tower. The young punisher said, I'll send word when they arrive. The gate will be open. Very well. We must not simply kill them. We must make news of our deed reach far and wide to farthy slaves and free men alike. Fear will help them hold their tongues. The young punisher said, You mean... The baker nodded. They'll not be reborn into paradise. We'll see to that. The young punisher swallowed hard and nodded. The dock worker said, What about the other business? The baker said, Ambassador Zamhel has gone on an extended journey. His house believes that he was recalled home temporarily. The stable hand said, It went flawlessly. No one in his house suspected anything. And the body? The young punisher said. The body will be made into sausages before sunset, and the bones ground into meal for box, said the baker. Let the infidels eat the traitorous wretch and further blacken their tainted, perfidious souls. The others nodded their appreciation. It was only fitting. Chapter 7 "'What do you mean he's gone?' Janice growled, leaning forward over Terrell's broad hardwood desk. "'Where the hell did he go?' Terrell stood behind the desk, hands at his sides. His slicked hair caught the sunlight streaming through the window behind him. "'I sent a messenger to his manor, and the messenger returned with this news. Ambassador Zamhel departed this morning with his bodyguards and his secretary.' The butler informed us that he was recalled by a letter from Al-Zab this morning. 
they departed by carriage before noon. Terrell's office was as austere as the man himself, save for a generous bookshelf laden with tomes. The inkwell, quill, and blotter were perfectly arranged. A basket of delicious-looking pastries sat on a corner of the desk. Janice eyed them for a moment, realizing that he had eaten nothing since the previous evening, and he had been awake most of the night. Terrell said, "'We're checking all the gates.' The guards were under strict instructions to let no one pass. I cannot believe that any of them would have allowed the farthy ambassador to leave in a situation such as this. Yesterday I would not have believed that two blue dragons and other unknown conspirators would have stolen Bella from under our noses. Today the entire world has changed. We are on the brink of something dark and terrible, something unlike we've ever experienced, even after all the years of endless war. Terrell teased his mustache. True, but we are indeed checking the gates, and we should receive word within the hour. Pastry? He gestured toward the delectables. I'll call for tea. I'm famished. Please sit down, Janice, at least for a moment. Let us gather our thoughts. Janice grunted and nodded. He sat down in the leather chair across from Terrell, who rang a small silver bell to summon a servant and ordered tea for them both. Janice said, why would Ambassador Zamhel be recalled to Al-Zab except to remove him as a prelude to a new war, especially in light of Bella's kidnapping? Precisely, but what puzzles me is that, for a farthy, Zamhel seemed to be forthright, honorable, if perhaps a bit too shrewd. I never felt any impression that he wanted anything except peace. Aye, peace. We have not even come to know peace. It is merely just an acquaintance. And furthermore, Terrell said, straightening his uniform, Zamhel has always seemed blessedly bereft of the fanaticism and zealotry of the priest-kings and so many of their people. Janice nodded. We could not have dealt with any of their fanatics to broker a ceasefire. Such a man was essential to get this far. But our armies still face each other on opposite sides of Tarn's Rift and Ramon Pass. The shooting has stopped, but it, it only takes a spark to ignite the powder. Who's holding the match, us or the farthy? After these long months, small villages have formed on either side of the front to serve the soldiers, tent villages on the fringes of the bivouac. Tradesmen, tinkerers, smiths, whores, and the like, our armies are becoming unto cities themselves. Janice snorted. Let us hope they don't grow roots. A servant arrived with a tray, and Janice and Terrell took their tea. Terrell gestured toward the pastries. Please, Janice, they're quite good. I know an excellent baker. Janice picked one that was light and flaky and stuffed with greenberry jam. He took a bite, and its deliciousness oozed. The light sweetness and flaky crust perfectly complemented the tea, and he had to agree that it was the most welcome food he had taken in quite some time. He would have to get the name of this baker from Terrell later. He flicked crumbs from his uniform. In the meantime, Terrell, a display of force at the border points will show them we mean not to take this without reprisal. We are mobilizing again. And the navies? The Wollstone and Macklin navies will form pickets around Norgard, Jelsey, Goffrin, the Cape of Fairhope, and the Straits of Kirkoon. A rowboat won't pass without being boarded. We cannot trust the Macklins. They are too hungry for power themselves, and they still seethe after you seized your office from Dellis Macklin. In fact, 
They are the perfect conspirators if it is not the Farthy who are responsible for Bella's disappearance. They have the ships, and they have the will. I'm aware of that, Janus snapped. But House Wollstone does not have the ships, nor does any other great house. We must be able to rely on the Macklins. They'll be quite happy to picket Jelsey. The city is mostly theirs, after all. Let them defend their own interests. And Simorn. They've wanted an excuse to seize position in Simorn for years. Give them a little and they'll stay in line. Provided that they are not our true enemy. I provided. Janice took another pastry. This one glazed in a rich, subtle buttercream. We must find Ambassador Zemhel and ask him some questions. Janice nodded, chewing as he spoke. Find him and bring him back. If we're going to go back to war, I want to hear it from him. By my last count, among all the great houses, there are 200,000 troops standing down. 247,000 regulars, plus a smattering few thousand in mercenary brigades and minor houses. And it's a three-week march for Ramon Pass, a few days more to Tarn's Rift. The farthy commanders will piddle in their small clothes when such numbers show up unannounced, along with a full complement of artillery and cavalry. Is it wise to commit the bulk of your forces now? Will we not be at risk of a flanking invasion? We need a show of force. Of course, by the time those troops arrive at the front, Bella could be found, and all this could be resolved. We'll see, Terrell. But something tells me this is only the beginning. Besides, we still have the navies and reserves covering our flanks, and our weaponry is still decades ahead of theirs. Perhaps... But they've had several months now to improve, although we have far more steel and better quality materials. They have been buying vast quantities from the Duthans. They won't be taken by surprise by superior firepower again. Their knowledge of blades has long been better than ours. We dare not assume that our weapons will remain superior. But there is a saying, Bring not a knife to a pistol duel. Janice stood up and brushed a few remaining crumbs from his breast, set down the gilded porcelain teacup. Oh, by the by, I spoke to Javin. Terrell's lips drew into a rigid line. Janice, you are a fool for bringing Rusk into this, and an even bigger fool for sending your son to him. I fear you'll never see Javin again. Perhaps, Janice said. Terrell would never give Rusk the merest dram of respect, not after what had happened between them. And after what had happened at the Fourth Battle of Tarn's Rift, neither would Rusk offer any to Terrell. Such was the danger of commanding such strong-willed men. "'Did you tell him goodbye?' Terrell asked, steepling his long fingers. Javin had already departed. Both of them hated long goodbyes, and the boy knew his father was proud of him. Did he not?' Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Heerman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the Donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.